Please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to begin in Ephesians 3 this morning. Uh, from time to time, people will say to me, uh, you know, Brian, we need to be more like the first century church. And I always respond, well, well which one? Um, should we be more like the Galatian church? They were deceived and fell into legalism and lost the freedom that they had in Christ. Or should we be more like the Ephesian church, who started out really well and then they lost their first love, which was Jesus Christ? Or, or maybe we should be like the Colossian church and they were pulled into all of the philosophies of the world and again, deceived. Or should we be like the Thessalonian church? They read the billboards that said Jesus is coming and they thought he actually had come and they were confused and fearful and paralyzed. Uh, we certainly don't want to be like the Corinthian church, right? Nobody ever names their church like First Corinthian Church of Bryan College Station or anything like that. Right, so, so which one? If we're going to be like the first century church, who, who do we want to be like? What do we want to have said of Grace Bible Church in another generation? What characterized us? Uh, I've been associated with, with this church for... Uh, a little over 30 years. I uh, started coming here when I was 15 years old. I've been on staff now for 18 years. Uh, I absolutely love this church, but because I've been around so long, I know all the good things and, and I know all the bad things as well. Probably as much or more than anybody else sitting out there. And I will tell you, I, I love this church. I absolutely love this church. It is far from perfect, but it's a wonderful church. And if you read the New Testament, there, there is not a perfect church even in the first century. And yet, if you look at the description of the church in the New Testament, it is described as a thing of beauty and of value. God loves the church. God loves the church. And he describes the church in various ways. The church is described as a bride. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 says this, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb, that is Jesus, has come and he has made his bride ready for himself. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. God says the church is like a bride and when the doors open and she is seen in her beautiful white dress, the church is beautiful, the church is valuable, the church is cherished by God. The church is the bride of Christ. Church is also pictured as branches. We are branches and Christ is the vine and we are intimately connected to him and when we are drawing our strength from him, we are depending upon him. He produces fruit for us, through us. And that fruit is beautiful and it is nourishing to us and to the world. We're described as a building, more specifically as a temple. You individually are a temple, but also we corporately are a temple and we are being built together as a place of worship for God. The only place of worship for God on earth right now. We're also described as a priesthood. The old priesthood through Aaron and Levi, that has been set aside. And now believers in Jesus Christ, we are the intermediaries. We're the ones who represent God on earth. And we take our prayers like incense and bring them before the Father. And we plead the case of those who don't know Christ. We bring them into the presence of the Lord. We can even come into his very presence. We're a priesthood. We're described as sheep. 
Old Testament, New Testament, God describes his people as sheep, which is uh, not the most flattering analogy that's given to us. We're, we're stubborn and uh, resistant to leadership at times and stinky and smelly. And yet, God loves us and cherishes us. The predominant analogy given throughout the Bible for the people of God is we're a family. God is our father. And Christ is the firstborn. He's our brother and he makes us brothers and sisters, a family. The whole concept of eternal security ultimately is built upon this. God is a perfect father, a faithful father. And even when his children are not faithful, he remains loyal to them. They always belong to him. One of Paul's favorite analogies is that we're a body. Jesus Christ is the head, and all of us are members of the body, each one indispensable. We're the body of Christ. The concept of church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, kaleo, the verb meaning to call, ek meaning out. We are those who are called out. It was used in secular Greek of an assembly. That is, people going through the daily motions of their lives, but then they stop and they assemble for a purpose. They are called out. We are called out ones. We are in the world, but we don't belong to this world. And so we feel uncomfortable sometimes with the way the culture is moving or the way that elections turn out. That should be no surprise. We don't belong here. This is not our home. We're citizens of heaven, called out from the world system, but we're not yet home. The English word church comes from another Greek word. It's an adjective, kuriakos, and it means belonging to the Lord. This is the fundamental part of your identity. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for all of the church's imperfections, God loves the church. What is the church? Well, Paul tells us it's a mystery. Read with me in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 4. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Paul says, in other words, let me define what a mystery is for you. In theological terms, it's something that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament, but now God has revealed it. And this is the mystery, he says. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me, according to the work of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light What is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known in this generation through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God says, I have now created a mystery. I've brought it to light. It's not an accident and it's not an afterthought. It's all part of my eternal plan. I just didn't reveal it beforehand. Now I have revealed it. And I revealed it so that all of the hosts of heaven could look on and see and proclaim, God, you are so wise. You are so powerful. And the mystery is this. Jew and Gentile, male and female, all together, one, equal in Christ. Now, Gentile, non-Jewish inclusion into God's kingdom was not a mystery. And that was revealed in the Abrahamic covenant. We're going to talk a lot more about that, unpack that 
when we get into the book of Romans this year. Okay? That was not a mystery. Gentiles included. God has always cared for Gentiles, always cared for all nations. But this idea that Jew and Gentile would be equal in Christ, that was a mystery. Before, if you wanted to be close to God, you had to come through the Jewish nation and you had to adopt the practices of Judaism. And there was literally a barrier that separated you as a Gentile from getting closer to God. In Ephesians 2, Paul talks about that. He says, the barrier of the dividing wall has been torn down in Jesus Christ. In the temple area, there was an area for the Gentiles, court of the Gentiles. It was the outer ring. Then there was a court for women, Jewish women. Then there was a court for Jewish men. Then priests and Levites could get a little bit closer. And then the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, but only one priest once a year. There were barriers set up all along the way. It's interesting. If you go to Israel now, you can't see anything of the old temple. Just the foundation is still there, but the temple is completely destroyed. When Titus came in in AD 70, He turned one stone over upon another because he had heard a rumor that there was gold in between the layers and so the thing was just totally decimated. But we have uncovered a few stones and one of those stones was in the barrier of the dividing wall, the wall that separated the Gentiles from the Jews and it says if a Gentile crosses over this barrier, he will be put to death. There was a barrier and Gentiles couldn't get closer and God says, let me reveal a mystery to you. Now Jew and Gentile, male and female, all come on equal footing because they come through Jesus Christ. And as his priesthood now, we can at any moment in time move right into the very holy of holies because God's spirit dwells within us. And the moment that you engage God and you pray, you're in his presence. That's a mystery. That's a privilege. And other generations didn't enjoy that. Church is a mystery. The church is a diverse unity. I want you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. Paul writes, For even as the body is one, one body, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, they are one body so also is Christ. When you think about the Corinthian church and the problems that it faced, what comes to mind? Well, normally, the first thing we think about is immorality, right? All different forms of immorality. But the first issue that Paul addressed with the church in Corinth was division, factions, dissension. It was a church that was being torn apart. I'm a Paul. I'm a Peter. I'm of Apollos. It was fractures, it was dissension, it was disunity. And Paul said, that is contrary to the very nature of church because church is supposed to be a unity. One of the words that describes the beautiful components or aspects of church is the word community. According to Augustine, that meant one together with. Okay? A union together with. One body, but many members. Now, from time to time, I I hear folks say, yeah, we should just be like the first century church. I say, which one? And then I'll hear people say, well, you know, I I really, I like the church all right. It's just the people I can't stand. I say, well, that's a problem because 
The church is the people. Now, when my kids were, were younger, they went to Sunday school and they came home and they said, Daddy, look what we learned in Sunday school. Look at this, Daddy. This is really cool. Look what we learned, okay? This is what we learned. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors and see all the people. And I say to them, that's wrong. That's wrong. And you need to tell your Sunday school teacher that's wrong what you learned. No, I, didn't say that, but it, I didn't say it like that, but I did say it. But gentler than that. But then, you know, that's, that's part of you raised in a, a pastor's home. It's what you get. I said, no, no, this is how it is, okay? What you get is, here's a building. It might have a steeple. Open it up and see the church, right? And then close the door and the church goes out into the community and there's salt and light. The church is the people. You can't say, I like the church all right, but I don't like the people because people are the church. We are the church. We're the church. Okay, we're the church. And every believer in this community is the church. Everyone who said, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins, that he rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. I believe every person that says that is part of the universal church, the body of Christ, whether they're Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian or Assemblies of God or non-denominational, that's the church. And we might meet here and call ourselves Grace Bible Church. We're a particular group gathered together to worship Because there's not a building that's big enough to house every believer that lives in this community or in this world. But the church is the people. Okay? A community, union together with. So, what is the church? A diverse unity, a biblical unity that actually reflects the very nature of God. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 17 and verse 20. John 17 verse 20. Jesus has just finished a meal with his disciples. Now he is praying for them. He's about to be betrayed and go to the cross. So he's praying for himself. He's praying for them. He's praying for the world. It's called his high priestly prayer. John chapter 17 verse 20. He says, Father, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, that is these twelve, And a few others who are sitting with them. My close band of followers. I don't ask on behalf of these alone. But for those who believe in me through their word. That's us. Jesus is right here praying for us. This prayer applies specifically to us. I pray that they may all be one. Even as you father are in me and I in you. That the world also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. That is an incredibly dense prayer. I promise you, I, I do not understand all of the theology there. Okay, but what Jesus is saying is, I want my, pe- my family, my people, my church to be unified in such a way that it actually reflects the fundamental nature of the triune God. That they would be one in the way that they relate to one another just as, Father, we are one. Wow. That's a remarkable statement. A few weeks ago, as part of the essentials, curriculum, uh, I think Blake took you through Doctrine of the Trinity, 
And I can guarantee he probably had way too much material and, you know, because he always does. And it was just packed. So I'm going to summarize what Blake said in one slide. All right. You can tell him I did it in one slide. It only took me one. This is the Trinity. God eternally exists and always has. As three equal yet distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There is only one God, Deuteronomy 6. That's the unity. Each person is distinct. There is a plurality. Father, Son, Spirit. Each person is fully God. That is equality. And the Father is over all. And the Son submits to the Father. And the Father and the Son send the Spirit. And the Spirit honors and glorifies the Son so the Son can honor and glorify the Father. That is the nature of the Trinity. And when we are all one as God has called us to be one, somehow, mysteriously, the world looks in and they see us in our relationships And whether they can consciously acknowledge it or not, they're seeing the nature of God. And thus the church is indispensable for witness on the earth. There are only two analogies that God has given fundamentally for the church to see what God is like, or for the world to see what God is like, and that is the church and the family and marriage. Okay? Three equal persons equal yet distinct, and a hierarchy of authority and submitting to one another, a hierarchy and yet mutual submission, and perfect love, even though there are different roles. And so, as the church interacts, as the church should interact, and there is biblical unity, we reflect the very nature of God. Biblical unity reflects the nature of God. Now, what does that mean? First of all, it means unity is not uniformity. We are all not alike. Husband and wife are not exactly alike. Husbands, if you don't know that, you come talk to me for counseling this week and we'll work on that. Okay? Husbands and wives are not exactly alike. Father, Son, and Spirit have distinct roles. Generally speaking, as you look throughout the Bible, it is the Father initiating, the Son executing, and doing so by the power of the Spirit. Now, there's a lot of overlap in things that they do as the Godhead, but there is distinction. Distinction within the Godhead, and there's distinction within the family and the marriage. Unity does not mean uniformity. In fact, God has intentionally made us all unique. Turn with me again to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and verse 7. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. But to each one of us is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the effecting of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing of spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. God is sovereign over all of this. And we should never say this one particular spiritual gift is a test of whether you are saved or whether you are spiritual, because God in his sovereignty gives to each one differently. You are unique by design. You are unique by design. And what that means is you are indispensable. Okay? God has put different spiritual gifts in people. He has put different personalities in people. Okay? There's sons of thunder, and then there's Barnabas the encourager. 
There's doubting Thomas. And there's Mary with her soft, believing heart. Different personalities, different gifts, different roles and responsibilities. Absolutely every single one indispensable to the body of Christ and necessary to the body of Christ. The controlling principle is this. Biblical unity requires diversity because it reflects the creativity and the wisdom and the intelligence of God. Third, biblical unity is not moral or theological compromise. Look in chapter 11, verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. What Paul is saying is, you have some divisions that are absolutely stupid, and I wish you'd just get rid of them. (laughs) I'm of Paul, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter. No, you're all of Christ, so stop that conversation. But on the other hand, there's some immorality in the body, and you're not confronting it and addressing it and drawing people to repentance so they can be restored to fellowship. That's creating a faction, okay? It should create a faction, rather, and it's not creating enough of a faction. I want more factions for those things. What draws us together ultimately must be a shared holiness and shared truth. Biblical unity is commitment to one another, a mutual shared commitment based upon truth and that truth applied to our lives. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4. Again, this is Paul writing to the Ephesian church, and he says, There is just one body. Why? Well, because there's just one spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And what unifies you is your mutual commitment to this truth. We believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God that is inspired by him. That is, God breathed it out through human authors and what they were penning as they wrote. In their own culture and in their own language, they were penning the very words of God. It's God's word. We believe the salvation is by grace through faith. It's based on the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. He died as a substitute for us. He died in our place so that we would not have to pay the penalty for our sins. And when he died, he paid the penalty for all sins, past, present, and future, for every man, woman, and child of every generation. And the moment that we believe, any one of us, that Jesus paid our debt, the debt is removed in Christ, and we receive eternal life, and we can never lose it. Now, we may not all agree, when is the rapture going to occur? And is it going to occur before the tribulation, middle of the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation? I can guarantee you it's just going to surprise all of us when it happens. It's, it's not a fundamental point for unity. But the essential doctrines of our faith, the word of God, the Trinity, substitutionary death of Christ, salvation by grace through faith alone, not my works, faith alone in Christ alone, these are the things around which we unify Now, it would be wonderful if we all loved one another's personalities, but that doesn't always happen in the body of Christ. Notice chapter 4, Ephesians, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Verse three, what Paul is saying is it's going to take a lot of hard work to maintain biblical unity. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. How do you do that? Well, you're going to have to be humble and gentle and patient with one another because the church which is the people, is filled with sinners saved by grace. And so he says to them, show tolerance for one another. And I want you to to put aside anything you've learned in the last decade about what the word tolerance means and understand in the Greek New Testament, what tolerance means is put up with each other. (laughs) I mean, literally, that's what the word means. Put up with one another. It's used in the Old Testament of God having to put up with Israel. He loves his children, but sometimes he's just putting up with them. It's used of Jesus putting up with his disciples. Oh, how he loved them. But would you stop arguing about who is the greatest? He's saying to the church, here are the fundamentals around which you unify. And it would be wonderful if you agreed on every point of doctrine and you enjoyed one one another's personality in every single aspect, but you won't therefore put up with one another, love one another, be gentle and humble and patient and kind, because as you do so, you'll, you'll act so differently than the world. And the world will see that the way that you love one another is so different, and slowly they will be drawn to Christ. They'll say, I need relationships like that. I need to be loved like that. I need to have people who will put up with me like that. Biblical unity is not based upon all of these non-essentials. The root of it is truth. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, Truth comes before unity. Unity without truth is hazardous. Our Lord's prayer in John 17 must be read in its full context. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Only those sanctified through the word can be one in Christ. To teach otherwise is to betray the gospel. Biblical unity is based upon a shared commitment to truth. And then beyond that, the power of the Spirit causes us to love one another. Fifth, biblical unity values the creativity and the sovereignty of God. Uh, In 1967, a book came out called I'm Okay, You're Okay, and then it kept getting reprinted over and over again. I remember reading it when I I think it was in junior high, I read I'm Okay, You're Okay. You know, even then I thought, that's just, what a dumb title. I I don't want to be okay. I want to be great, honestly. I want to be at least really good, right? What the Word of God tells you is not, you're okay. Could be better, but you're okay. No, the Word of God says to you, You are indispensable. You are indispensable to my family. My family is incomplete without you. Again, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 15. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand and I really want to be a hand, not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body, is it? If the ear says, because not, I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, because the eye thinks the eye is so great and everyone else should be like the eye. You should be like me. I'm an eye and eyes are the best. And Why aren't you more like me? 
If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? You are created unique, different, by design. And you are indispensable to the full health of the body of Christ. Corollary truth. You are also incomplete by design. God made you with strengths. He gave you spiritual gifts and he made you incomplete and inadequate on your own. You need others. And that's God's design. And that's okay. You have strengths, you have abilities, you have spiritual gifts. You may not have discovered them yet, but they're there. And God has given them to you to make you absolutely unique and special to the body of Christ. He also made deficits in you so that you would need others. Hey, on a Sunday morning, we have a worship service, and I do a little part. I work during the week, I prepare a message, I stand up, and I assume that the sound system will work. I don't know how. It's just there. It's a beautiful thing. If it wasn't working, I couldn't fix it. Okay, I couldn't fix it. Now, I understand some basic principles on the soundboard. If you push the knobs up, things get louder, right? I got that. But if they're screeching or whatever, I don't know how to fix that. And I don't know which cables get plugged in where. And so every week, there, uh, there is a group of, of men and women who do uh, the lights and the sound system and the slides and you should turn around for a moment and notice them uh, and acknowledge them. They, they really hate that. But without them doing their job, it doesn't happen. Okay? And there are musicians who come up here. And, um, you know, I can, I, can, uh, I can actually play guitar. I, got, I know like about seven chords. I can play some old Kansas songs for anybody who wants to stay later, my generation. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's not lovely and I can sing okay, but I promise you do not want me to lead worship because God has gifted others to do that. And, and I am, I'm blissfully ignorant of certain things that happen back there. I just trust these people because they're so gifted and intelligent and these people are so gifted and, and, and wise at picking out songs and arranging songs and performing these things for all of us. And every single member is absolutely necessary and every member has a deficiency. So we will learn to value and love and need one another. Okay? And that is biblical unity, truth at the core, valuing one another. Why does God do that? Well, the church needs you, and you need the church. The building doesn't need you. The people need you, and you need the people. Church needs you. You need the church. For two things. First, for maturity. Let me read to you. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. The head is Jesus Christ, and from him... The whole body is fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part which causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And you all together, Paul will say, together are becoming the temple of the Lord. And if you are disconnected from the body of Christ, if you are disconnected from other believers, 
There's no one else who's speaking truth into your life and you're speaking truth into their life. No one who's encouraging and challenging and motivating you and rebuking you when you need rebuke, but encouraging you when you're down. If there's no one in your life doing that, then there will be a deficit in your spiritual maturity. You cannot grow to full maturity apart from the body of Christ. Okay? You need the church and the church needs you for maturity, but also for mission. John 17, let me read you again. Verse 21 and 23. Jesus says, I pray that they may all be one. And I want them to be one like this. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, just as the Trinity is unified, that they may also be in us for this purpose. So that the world may believe that you sent me, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. The church wasn't an afterthought. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, God didn't say, oops, not what I expected. I sent him to be king and they rejected him. No, that was God's intended plan. He would send Jesus to his own people, to the Jews. They would reject him. And as a result of their rejection, the payment for sin would be made on behalf of all people because God's intention was to gather to himself a family from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And right now he has put a mystery form of that family on earth. And as we choose to value and respect and love one another, in spite of all of our differences, the world is drawn to Jesus Christ through us. So I have one application point for you this morning, and that is as we approach the fall, and you're thinking about your life and your spiritual maturity, that you would remember that a fundamental part of your life and your spiritual maturity is that you are attached to the body of Christ. How will you be attached? How will you build these relationships? People who who want the same thing in their life. They want their lives to be lived for the honor and glory of Christ. How will you find those people and attach to those people? And speak into their lives truth and encouragement and rebuke and love. And have them speak into your life as well. Apart from that, you individually can never grow to full maturity. And the whole body can't grow to maturity. So I challenge you to consider where will you become fully a member of the body of Christ? this fall. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for revealing your plan to us. I thank you that you have made your people indispensable. Rather than choosing to write your message in the clouds, you've chosen to cause it to be incarnated through us. As we love you and we love one another, people are drawn to you through us. I pray, Father, that we would begin to see and value one another as you see us in Christ. And I do thank you for the church with all of its faults and failures. I thank you for the beauty of the church. And I thank you for this church, Father. And I pray that you grow us to maturity in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. And we'll see you next week.